Welcome to Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We will be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts, and you can learn more about Shanghai Zhan at our website, johnstation.com. I'm Bryce Witwam, and I'm Ali Kazmi. And Ali, we've hit the two hundred thousand download mark as of today. What do you think about that? Wow, that's amazing! Can't believe it. We were at one hundred fifty thousand, I think, a couple of months ago. So, I know、great. it just keeps keeps going up. Compounding so,、uh, that amazing algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> And surprisingly, a lot of people listening to our previous shows, which is which is also good. And if you're one of those that、uh, likes the show,、uh, we really appreciate your continued support by. Uh, sharing with your friends, or better yet, going on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and giving us a five-star review. You know, Ali, China has gone from 900,000 patents in 2011 to 4.6 million a year in 2021. In 2021 alone, 200,000 new products by high-tech companies were introduced into the market. China. At 100 billion, spends about five times more on new product development, in, even in 2021, which we know is a COVID year, than it did in 2011. And despite all the talk about slowdowns and things, things are still happening. And what can we learn from this?、Uh, that's the topic that we are going to discuss today. And here to talk about it,、uh, about the driving force of innovation and why the world should follow. Uh, China's lead is Joanna Hutchins. She's a China expert, global marketer, adjunct professor, and author of ChinaFi: Why China is Leading the World in Innovation and How the Rest of the World Can Catch Up. Joanna has 25 years of experience in leading brands, both business to business and B to C, across the globe. We know Joanna, of course, from our early days in Shanghai when she was at Unilever. So remember that, Ali? I do. I do remember sitting across her and trying to sell a sell a campaign. I do believe that was also my role at some point as well. So、uh, she's one of the most awarded top 1,000 global market leaders.、Uh, not many can claim to have won effectiveness, creative, and Grand Prix awards. Joanna has won them all, and her relationship with China extends for over 20 years and counting. Joanna, welcome to Shanghai Zhan. Hi guys, hi. Thanks for having me. It's、uh, like you mentioned. It's good to see you in a different context all these years later. <laughs> yeah, we won't be pushing you any ponds campaigns on the show today, so don't worry. Yeah,、no, that's di- that's disappointing. <laughs> Joanna, you've got a fascinating book, and and I would say timely book as well, entitled ChinaFi: How China is Leading in Innovation and How the World. The rest of the world can catch up. Is launching this month. Your talk about nine catalysts to Chinify your business. I think Ali and I are just curious. How did you come up with these, and what was your process to come up with them? How long have you been working on this? So I've been working on this book、uh, about three years. I mean, I, th- I think it's an interesting s- story, of course. So I, it's the product of a thesis I wrote that I expanded into a book, and I'll tell you how that came about. It's. Around 2018, I'd been in China, you know, the better part of 10 years,、um, and I felt like、uh, perhaps my and and I'd been in Asia longer, and I felt like perhaps my perspective was a bit skewed when it came to my practice area, which was strategy and innovation, and a bit a bit skewed towards Asia, and I wondered if I was missing out on 
some advances, learnings, progress, and just different ways of thinkings, thinking in Europe or the U.S. And so I went back and I did a master's degree at Oxford University in strategy and innovation at the, the business school there. It was, a, it was a modular program, so I was still working in China and going back and forth and spending about 10 days a quarter in Oxford. About halfway through the program, I thought, well, this is really interesting, and I'm meeting lots of interesting people, but I actually feel like they're way behind. So I was enjoying my studies, but I was also feeling, you know, it was a n- nice to get different perspectives, but every single class or lecture or, you know, conversation I'd have with my fellow students or, or professors, I would be putting forward China examples that, that I could see were shaking the foundations of what they assumed they knew about China, right, which is like cheap, fast, you know, qu- quantity over quality. And so I wrote my thesis on that. And then uh, the professors that I, uh, you know, had submitted and defended the thesis to suggested I turn it into a book. So I then started to build out the cases around my points. And and the points themselves were, the nine points were derived from my studies. So it was literally looking at innovation theory, looking at, let's say, like concepts and precepts around disruptive innovation, value creation, commercialization, you know, reducing a lag time, the length between like innovation conception and adoption. So looking at all these very well-established and well-entrenched uh, concepts around innovation, but then looking at how China was accelerating those or doing better at those, you know, making making more of what they had to generate more commercial impact. So it, was, it kind of came from a solid academic foundation, but then I translated it into business context supported by case studies, um, examples of businesses, et cetera. That's really interesting. I recently did a guest lecture. It had both Chinese and American students in the class. And one of the things I said to the, to the students, or at least to the calling out to the Chinese students, is that they are, in fact, the innovators. And this is a marketing advertising class. And I said, they are, in fact, the innovators, not their American counterparts. And I said, don't think you come to America to study from Americans they should be studying from you. I think that the Chinese were quite shocked by that and, of course, naturally humbled. They came up to me and they, they never saw it in that way. Question is, why is it time to copy China? I mean, in your book, you talk about a fluidity of connecting the dots and transferring existing technologies and concepts into new context. You also have a couple references. Maybe you could highlight those references uh, and share some catalysts for maybe the non Chinese innovators and how they could take up these innovations? Sure. The The reason I assert it's time to copy China, it's, it's really to provoke a conversation, right? So for so long, there have been so many China detractors saying that, you know, asserting that China is only ahead because it's copying. And a lot of the conversation around China, I think, if I can dive into this, sort of the, the detractors around the China story and the China progress, it, there are a lot of you know, valid concerns that people have about IP theft, about just talked about about copying, about political and social uh, divergences with Western thought, etc. But my my view is there can actually be two truths at the same time, right? And you can hold two truths in your hand, which is these things we could we could debate and argue those, or we could just say, okay. We accept that there might be some cases of that, and we can park them over here, and we can also look at another truth, 
which is that China can be innovated and, and scaling and generate value creation, generating value creation faster than any other economy in the world. And it's, you know, and what I've tried to do in the book is separate out some of those arguments against as well as some of the, I'd say, like environmental arguments against. So environmental meaning like, oh, there's so many people. Oh, they've closed competition. You know, they've locked out lots of different brands and sort of social and digital platforms. If you can take all of that and put it on the side and just really look purely at what's happening, what I've tried to do is do that as much as possible. Of course, you know, it's not, it's not complete. You can't sort of slice those things off and, and park them tidily in a box, but you can isolate some factors that are repeatable, some, some models that will be repeatable to the outside world in other countries and other businesses. So that's what I've tried to do. So the nine points are around things that I think you know, Western businesses. And I think I come from a unique perspective in the sense that I've, you know, worked for Western companies most of my career, um, but in the China context. So, I, you know, I look at these and I think I could apply these in a Western business context, in a Western market. I could apply these. And, um, and actually quite a lot of the people I'm talking to about the book are are really interested in more of the developing countries. I could apply this in an Indian context, you know, a, a different part of Asia. I could apply this in an African context. You know, anywhere that you're looking to scale or drive growth, these these catalysts should be repeatable. I'll pause there, and I, I can talk about the catalyst, but I realize I've been talking a few minutes, and you may want to, to interject at this point. Um, and then I, I could tell you what a few of them are, for example. I was going to ask, going to the you know the, the first half or the first part of the question, why do we think it's time to copy China? China's soaring ahead of the rest of the world, and people don't realize it. We've all been a bit mired in our own politics well, it's a, it's a myopia. It's a myopia around, you know, China is the new uh, personification of sort of like a different uh, realm of, of thought, you know, something we don't agree with in the West. Um, I suppose when I was growing up in the 80s, it was Russia, right? And I feel like from an American point of view, like China's now in that position where, where, where in my youth, Russia was in the 80s. And I think that people just sort of discount what's happening in China. They don't look closely enough and they don't understand how they've scaled things like, you know, cashless payment uh, well in advance of the rest of the world. They don't understand how 80% of consumer goods are bought on e-commerce. And uh, that has disrupted a whole traditional value chain of distribution and supply chain, you know, in a good way, you know, increasing the quality of people's lives and providing them access to goods and products. So there, there's quite a lot of interesting things going on, but people are distracted by the politics, so they don't see what's happened, I would say, in a concentrated way in the last decade. Uh, that's why I think it's time to look. I also think COVID's had a role to play um, with borders being closed and everybody being a bit you know, inward looking, you know, just dealing with the problems that they have on their own plates. Business leaders haven't been able to travel to China uh, and see firsthand what's going on. So it's all happening in a bit of a vacuum. And people aren't aware of the massive progress. Um, I mean, you know, we know because we've been living there. But I think, you know, to, to walk into like a city like Shanghai today, you know, walk out of the airport, walk into a city and move around and see how daily life you know, is live. It's rather startling if people were to experience it firsthand, which they haven't been able to for a number of years. Absolutely. It is something that's stupendous in the context of living there and seeing things change so rapidly on a personal level. 
and being able to see how that infrastructure has supported businesses, especially within the marketing context of how you're able to interact with your mobile phone in a retail shop and being able to seek information and order things. When you go to another market, let's say in the US, and you realize that nothing much has changed. Of course, cashless payments exist uh, in the US. People rarely bring out cash and they have debit cards and the system is quite sophisticated. But the level of information exchange still isn't there. Joanna, my question to you, I know that you put these through an environmental lens. I would assume cultural as well. But I sometimes see the changes that's happened as more of a actions of serendipity. That the fact that Facebook and Google were banned, that the banks were not privately run like in the US, they were run by the government and the government basically gave uh, Alibaba and Tencent the free reign to be able to set up the payment system. Are, are these things the question of historical chance that things that just happen naturally or are they hard driven strategies that Western companies could adapt? I think it's a fair question and I think for me, it's it's definitely a bit of both. You know, when you look back at some of these things, which are now, you know, 10 years on, 15 years on in China, you know, whether they happen by happenstance or luck or right place, right time, doesn't mean that you can't create those conditions and replicate them, right? Another, do, do you see what I'm saying to some degree? So, for example, like, let's talk about the Ali moving into uh, cashless, vertically integrating to deal with a problem that they had, which was how are people going to pay for things? And if you look at, you know, that as a principle about, you know, solving for your own roadblocks, vertically integrating to address some of the gaps in the market, becoming a bridge builder. So, so what I talk about, one of the catalysts is, is becoming a bridge builder. And it's like there is a, often a lag time between innovation and its adoption. For some industries or inventions or innovations, this can be months, it can be years, it can even be decades. I mean, if you look at things, you know, even like cloud storage, it's been around for 60 years, but it's finally now, let's say in the last five, 10 years, becoming mainstream. But one of the things that I think Chinese businesses have done, either by necessity, because the infrastructure didn't exist, or with government support, is become a bridge builder and close those gaps that prevent the scale of your core business proposition into the mainstream. And so whether or not the example that you used about um, Alipay, whether or not that was supported or necessitated, you know, by the, the structure of the environment, it doesn't mean that there's not a lesson to be learned about how to extrapolate a learning from that and put it in another market. And I think like other companies, you know, like it's, it's not a foreign concept. Other companies like Amazon have done it, right? They solve supply chain for themselves. And that's fundamentally probably, and you know, Zara solved basically just in time manufacture for fashion. It's not a, a new concept that doesn't exist that that I would say only exists in China, but I think it's something that China's really run with and you can see the potential for it, like even in a small business. You know, if you have a gap that you need to close, it's not somebody else's problem or let's wait until, you know, the system catches up with us. I mean, what China's saying is there's no idea that's too early for its time and a lot of innovations do die. 
you know, on the basis of, oh, the enabling infrastructure around it wasn't there. It was too, is it too early? The idea was too early. And I think from a China point of view, what I see businesses do is it's not too early. We'll find a way. If we have to vertically integrate, we'll do that. We'll, you know, we'll identify the gaps and the obstacles and we'll remove those obstacles and we'll close those gaps. And so it's really taking a, like a broader macro view on enabling innovations and how you build bridges in that example, you know, to close those gaps. I can only comment on the fact that for both Bryce and myself, you know, we've been in China for about 20 years as well. I think I might have mentioned this on an, on an earlier show on how China has kind of transformed and we've seen three countries over the last three years. I, I don't know about Bryce, but I remember when, you know, in Beijing, when the you know, buying vegetables was certainly something that we would do off of donkey or, you know, donkey carts on the third ring road, which is something that you would you don't see anymore. And I think the country's kind of transformed into delivery of fresh fruits and vegetables through exactly that example that you shared e-commerce and, you know, is delivered to your doorstep in under 30 minutes. So, yeah, I think that transformation that China's gone through, the digitization that it's gone through is giving it a significant edge over the rest of the world. Was that also similar to the experiences you had, Bryce, would you say? And that's something in your book you talk about short term gains versus long term innovation you know, in terms of how you balance that out. In effect, can Western companies be trapped by short-term games and what we call topical innovation? Most of the companies we know it, we might think of are assembled around quarters and years. Is that how China is innovating or are they taking more of a long-term approach? And do businesses have to rethink about how they innovate? I think the West has confused innovation and invention. <laughs> and this is something... China's fairly, I think, clear on it. And, and the reason, you know, invention from a de definitional point of view is something that's invented for the first time, new to the world, right? And innovation can just be improvements or modifications of things that, solutions that lead to broader use, more use cases, broader use cases, uh, more application. And I think the, um, the West has romanticized and uh, elevated invention to the point that innovation is less celebrated. They often call invention innovation in the West. And so what I think to some degree gets promoted, like when I say, I suppose I can say the U.S. because I'm American and so I, I can know that a bit more firsthand. When I look at the U.S. and, you know, you look at uh, things that are happening you know, in the startup world, uh, in the Silicon Valley, or now the Austin, Boise, wherever, you know, wherever the startup communities are moving, there's a higher priority given to invention than innovation. But innovation can actually yield more value creation. It can yield more commercial impact. It can bring more jobs, more income into the economy uh, and generate new value propositions for customers. So I do feel like that's something that China's a little less precious about. And as a result, the innovation culture is fostered and nourished. And even small things, small wins are celebrated because they can be the stepping stones to the bigger ones. And so they're thinking about, in China, innovation as a very long game, much like they think about everything, right? What gov how many governments do you know, you know, outside of Asia, in particular China, that have, you know, 10-year plans, 20-year plans? You know, when you look at what China's achieved, and like just from a government point of view, against some of the 10 year plans that people thought were impossible a decade ago, they're actually quite, you know, ahead of them in some respects. And I think business leaders, 
think that way too. And they don't get too caught up in the small failures, you know, along the way. They just keep pressing forward because the end goal, the longer range, big goals in mind. Whereas, you know, it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, I suppose, in the US where you've got the stock market and you have to show investors, you know, certain amounts of growth. Um, so it's not to, it's not to say that you can just sort of step away from that and step off the treadmill. I mean, your you know your stock price, your shareholder value is very much tied to your monthly and quarterly results. But at the same time, I think China also has a stock market, and they're all they also have investors that are looking for those kinds of returns. And I think what they do is, to your point, is they balance them a little bit more in their minds, and they realize you know sometimes you have to take two steps back to take a giant leap forward. Perhaps even the competitive base over here is is a, is a lot more aggressive. I'm just looking at statistics on on uh, on smartphone shipments in China as, as well at the moment. And you know, Apple, for example, has always come across as a as a manufacturer that's never been the first to bring out a new device, whether it's the best the new higher definition camera, or it's a, it's a better screen. It's a faster processor. It's got more hard disk space. It's never been the first in market with uh, invention, but it's been really good at innovating the application of some of the some of the ingredient technologies so that they offer better experience to consumers. But then I'm also thinking, just looking at exactly the same same chart, you've got Xiaomi, you've got Huawei, you've got Oppo, Vivo, Honor, Samsung, Lenovo, Meitu, and so the size of China, I guess makes it you know creates the right kind of condition for that for that competition to happen right whereas i guess in in the rest of the world you you're kind of there's there's a lot more monopoly i guess with uh with a few major platforms with a few major kind of category leaders but i think china is a bit more you know they're open to creating that competition i mean i would i would argue that china is probably one of the most competitive markets in the world and even if it's in some categories with their own brands, right? So, you know, China for China brands, that that the level of competition is much more fierce and intense and that a lot of what these companies are, regardless of category of product or, or service or looking to do, is generate growth, scale, and, and value creation at a, at a more rapid pace than the next person. And because like, I always thought about working in China as like dog years. I, I really did. I was like one year in China is like seven years in the outside world, right? So regardless of, of thinking about the mobile phone example you gave, you gave, the smartphone example, and all the different brands, the competition and what they're achieving in terms of growth and value creation in that time is much more intense. And there's a lot to be learned from that. The market conditions aren't replicable outside. Absolutely. Absolutely not. You know, completely agree with that. But how within that internal competition, how's one brand propelling itself to growth over another is a really interesting thing to study. And what are the things that we can learn from the brands that are growing faster than others and how we can bring that learning outside to other parts of the world. So for example, like one of the things, I mean, I mean, I'm physically in the U.S. right now, and I'm working with some clients here, and you know, I'm talking to them about social commerce, for example, which is fairly nascent here. But it's going to be TikTok Doyen was was fairly nascent, you know, a few years ago, and now it's completely eating lunch of the U.S.-based social media platforms, right? So social commerce is here in small form. What can we learn on how brands are using that to drive exponential growth 
in China. So it's not necessarily, I don't dispute that there's a closed environment or that, you know, those conditions exist uniquely in China, but it's, but it doesn't mean that there aren't these really real nuggets of within, even within those, how are people, you know, how are people clawing market share and bringing it to their brands versus, uh, versus the competition? Could you explain the concept of big S and small S and how could Western companies embrace a small S? versus a big S, which of course we know is big strategy versus small strategy. Uh, could you elaborate? Yeah, I'll explain the concept. Sure. Yeah, I'll explain the concept first. So, I mean, this is just a, a term, this is like a way of describing it that I've come to, which is strategies are different in in the West and in China at, at a, you know, at a high level, like we're talking about company level strategies. And I have described that as big S versus small S strategy. In my definition, big S strategy is the space of like deep thinking, you know, what the, what's the company's purpose? How do we manifest that purpose? And, you know, our different business units and our pillars of activity, uh, how does it take shape in company culture and how, what's the big picture visioning or strategic frameworks for like a five-year plan, you know, which um, business units will we grow and, and how? Um, and I would call that, and you know, that's very much like what I used to do at Unilever as well. Like it's very much big S strategy, like the big picture. That's why I call it big S. It's like big picture thinking, like big sort of umbrella uh, strategy with strategic pillars. But Chinese businesses tend to focus on what I've come to call small S strategy, which is just the strategy of how you get things done. It's a, I would call it a strategy of operational agility. You know, how do you create the systems and processes and procedures for the everyday routines that actually turn into, you know, income to the business? I think, I think big S strategy, there's, you know, don't get me wrong, there's a role for that. And I think a lot of companies, um, you know, in the, in the U.S., like these, these big picture plans are, you know, are fundamental to how they drive growth. But, but where I see the Chinese companies doing things differently is they think they think that big S strategy is a luxury, unless you've got the small S strategy well in hand. You know, you can you can ideate around uh, or envision a future for a business, you know, to let's say own or dominate a certain category, and but unless you have a real pragmatic focus on operational agility, you know, how do you actually make that happen? And so it's really the business of execution. Like it's, it's strategy around execution. And I think that's, I think what's really interesting about that is we like, we're, cause we're in marketing, right. And we all know this from a very real point of view, which is, you know, you can have a great creative concept, but it all comes down to, or a great big idea for your brand, or, you know, you can have a very differentiated proposition, but unless it manifests into the things that you do say and how you appear in the market, like it doesn't really mean much. But if you take that back from like a marketing perspective to, to a business level, I believe this is how Chinese businesses really get things done in a, in a faster, more meaningful, more nimble way. And it's not about like speed over quality. It's just about operationalizing you know how we how you make things happen you know when i read the the document that you shared with us the way i translated or the way i understood it was big s is you know setting this big goal and then working backwards from it and then designing as an organization what are the things that we as a big company need to do in order to achieve those goals and therefore the association with the quarters and all of that stuff the smallest stuff, like that, what made sense for me was, you know, when you think about, you know, Jack Ma and his, you know, the, you know, him 
going out to set up this marketplace where anyone anywhere in China could trade with each other. I don't think he really had this vision to build out supply chains so that products would be delivered within 24 hours. I don't think he had the, you know, he had a plan to make it possible for for people to use digital wallets, uh, apps, and a RMB. But I think I think at some point he realized that it was difficult for product to be delivered on time. I think he realized also it was getting really complicated for people to to you know to transfer money using the existing infrastructure that existed. So I think those problems kind of as they emerged, and that proximity to consumer I think in China is a lot closer than 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 at least I would assume happens in the rest of the world. And so I think that's kind of then. You know, translated or transpired into the the small strategy. One of the other catalysts that I quite like is reverse innovation uh, and how to drive that. I think that's a really interesting point because you obviously talk about the benefits of something like a Nespresso subscription or Amazon Prime. Uh, those are great. Those are great for people with money, but for not necessarily for people of lesser incomes or, like you said, a lot of countries and things would not really embrace that. I always find like. Even when you travel to the U.S., we end up buying a lot of stuff that's made in China and bringing it back to China or to other countries. My wife, I said, "Why are we doing this?" And she says, "Well, there's two levels of China. There's the inexpensive stuff, and then there's the high-quality stuff that you buy in the U.S." I always find that so fascinating that they're actually creating、uh, different levels of products for different. Different, obviously, different income groups and classes and things, and I guess maybe that could be an example of a diversified portfolio as a, an example of reverse innovation. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you mean by reverse innovation and how are some、uh, companies in China embracing it? Yeah, so I mean, reverse innovation isn't my concept. There was a fellow from GE that first、uh, popularized the term about 15 years ago. But it's something that I think that China and you know, frankly, all developing countries have had to do by necessity, which is how do you solve for the masses,、uh, which tend to be lower income. So, you know, for example, when I worked at Unilever, and I think in general you see this with all kinds, you know, all kinds of companies in the let's call it fifteen twenty years ago in the developed world、uh, or less emerging markets, the the already for, fully formed markets. You know, a lot of the innovation work that we were doing was around trading people up、uh, to a more sophisticated offer, trading people up in terms of value proposition, product benefits, price. So, you know, the Nespresso example I mentioned in the book is a really good, you know, like that's just a case in point, right?、You、trade people up from, you know, regular coffee machines、um, and. At home to like a higher level of quality, a different value proposition, and obviously a very different price point. Amazon Prime, for example, as well. But I think what gets ignored a lot in the wealthier economies is the opportunities for those consumers at the bottom of the socioeconomic pyramid. I mean, there's a lot of just like merc- like being mercenary from a business point of view. There's a lot of value creation there, but there's also a lot of social opportunity to solve problems. That people really have, and so, you know, from a just a pure marketing point of view, a lot of what we tend to do is try to trade people up to, you know, to a higher value offer. But but in doing so, we ignore the gold that exists at the bottom of the pyramid, right? And、um, 
And to some degree, this is, you know, more than, as I mentioned, more than just the economic potential, but it actually, you know, can really transform people's lives. So China had to do this out of necessity because there were a lot of consumers that, you know, large uh, swaths of low-income consumers. Um, So China had to do it out of necessity, which is just to create products that are stripped down or good enough for a less sophisticated consumer. I mean, a couple of examples you know, of this would be uh, like Xiaomi, which first came with, you know, the really uh, affordable smartphones, but obviously now is in the whole Internet of Things space. What happens in those two examples is, yes, you take lower margins, right? You do take you do take lower margins on those products. I mean, the fundamental premise of reverse innovation is stripping the product back, accepting a slightly lower margin in return for, for much higher volume. So it is margining down a business. But it's also bringing consumers into a product group that they might have been previously excluded from. I mean, there are a lot of really good business reasons why you do this. But I think it's sort of it strikes terror in the hearts of a lot of CEOs and marketers to think about developing and selling a lower margin product. But the reality is you you do serve a lot of consumers when you do that. And not only is the business opportunity there, you sort of bring them in to it, you can bring those consumers into a, a different quality of life, which I think also has a lot of social value. If all this talk on Capitol Hill about decoupling from China, I think that they fail to miss that point is that China fills that gap, that there that those opportunities, whether you're at, you know, at Family Dollar or the dollar store uh, or or at Walmart, those those products at lower income groups are filled by China. There there is no American equivalent in many many categories for that. So uh, if you're going to decouple that, you're basically going to cut off a large swath of of lower income groups that that you know are effectively served by those those products. So I think it's definitely something important to consider. It's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it that way before. Like in terms of the the coupling of China and and the U.S. and and who would be most impacted. So it's a really interesting point that it would be potentially the lower income consumers in the U.S. that rely on uh, more value, uh, like things with a, that are more accessible with a higher value proposition for them. And I wonder if that's actually the strategy. I wonder if that's the China strategy to create something that's low cost, that gives broad-based market access to you know to a company or to whoever the manufacturer is you know i think about whether it's alibaba or huawei or xiaomi i i I kind of get the sense and you know just looking at some of those examples that they've always gone for the you know the the consumer that's at the bottom end of that scale and created product that you know over time that's that's then later on started to serve you know different demographics and the build out of you know whether it's a yogurt beverage or it's it's a mobile device or it's uh, an e-commerce marketplace the entry point for a lot of these big manufacturers or organizations has always been the lowest common denominator within an economy does that does that resonate with you and 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 i guess at some point they've gone on to innovate and premiumize and all this stuff but but you know, just thinking thinking of all the companies that I can think of, just feels like they've always started, and and that's where the you know the small s exists. Uh, yeah, those are all really. There's always been all this small s innovation that's led to 
a more premium product. What do you think? I would interject another company and case in there that's that maybe slightly different. So if I capture what you're saying correctly and tell me if I'm wrong, like, you know, you're saying, okay, like these are sort of more accessible products at lower price points, but they tend to be in potentially the lower value space. Uh, but I would say that, you know, if you look at like BYD in electric vehicles, you know, cars are generally a higher value space, right? A lot of buying a car is at least in some parts of the country, you know, some parts of the world mandatory because it's like everybody has to have a car to get around, like in the, you know, almost everyone in the U.S., um, unless you live in a big city like New York with great public transport. But in China, it's not necessarily required in in a lot of the big cities where public transport is more dominant. But they what they've done, BYD, is they've managed to make an electric vehicle for $15,000 U.S., right, which is you know, about one third of the price of the lowest price vehicle on the market. And so what I think will be really interesting is, you know, we're talking about, and, you know, pardon me for saying this, like cheap Chinese crap and, you know, like the kind of stuff that people would put in that category, like, you know, plastics, like things that you use, you know, in the home, like plastic cups or plastic, you know, wear, things like that, that, you know, nobody really cares where they come from, but people do care where their cars come from, (laughs) right? And and I remember when Korean cars launched in the U.S., was it the 80s or the 90s? I can't remember, but, you know, around that time, and and it took a while for them to get a foothold, but they represented better value. And I think when you look at the whole world moving towards electric vehicles, BYD has a product that is way more accessible, that they're planning to scale globally, that's going to firmly undercut every car manufacturer in the world in terms of what they can provide in the electric vehicle space. What's interesting is not how China's sort of dominating lower price points in like everyday products, like plastic things that we sort of have around the home, but but what will be interesting is how they start to dominate in these really higher value items that are fundamental uh, in some cases, to to national economies like car manufacture. I'm just curious. Do you think that for global brands to be successful now in China, do they have to embrace some of these catalysts in China to be successful? That they have to think like Chinese companies do to be successful, or is it not necessarily that they embrace all of them or some of them? Do you think that? The fact that they may not necessarily embrace the Chinese innovation scale that they are providing a unique product or service not provided by Chinese companies, or is it just a requirement for them to embrace the similar changes to the companies that they are competing against in the market? Yeah, that's a fair question. I think it's a hygiene factor that you, you know, if you're going to compete in China, you have to compete like a Chinese company would, right? And I think a lot of companies suffered because they, uh, you know, I don't mean like in the public eye, but just suffered like in terms of losing market share and losing sales because they because they haven't. I think the time of of bringing, I don't want to keep vilify, like vilifying Western Western thought, but this this notion of like this is how this brand operates in the West and this is how we're going to do it in this country. I mean, those days are clearly over. And so to be competitive, Western brands have to compete in China like Chinese brands. However, that doesn't mean, and I agree, I agree with what you were saying earlier and, and what your, you know, your other guest was talking about, which is there's still a lot of value in foreign brands in China. 
Absolutely. But how you compete, how you go to market, you know, how you sell those products, how you how you engage with consumers on a fundamental level, like, you know, whether it's social commerce, live streaming, you know, just sort of, let's say, speaking the language of the digital economy is fundamental. But there's still a lot of value. I mean, I think it depends on the category as well. You know, you look at car, back on the car example, like Jaguar Land Rover, still a very attractive brand imported uh, for a number of years to China, you know, really at a ridiculous price premium versus what you'd pay in any other country because it was so um, valued and frankly, so also so expensive to, you know, to bring them over. Well, they started making them in China and they had to cut the price by 30% because, uh, Chinese wanted to buy a, a car handmade in England, had a little bit less confidence when it was made in China about the quality. And not because they have concerns about like China quality per se. It's just that there is like, you know, when you've been making cars for over 100 years, you know, on an assembly line, which is largely by hand and not automated, you know, there's going to be lost in translation quality controls when you move that production to a more automated system in another country, right? So I think I think brands have to be aware of things like this, right? Which is, you know, Chinese consumers are buying your product for a reason. What's that reason? I mean, a lot of the luxury brands, of course, you know, like we're talking fashion luxury and, you know, it'd be very similar if they started making Louis Vuitton or Gucci, you know, if it was coming from factories in Guangzhou. And don't get me wrong, I know a lot of components are, but if it was, you know, fundamentally a China supply chain, I think consumers would have, you know, different concerns because they're buying like Providence. They're buying handcrafted. They're buying, you know, Italian leather, you know, whatever it is, whatever category you're playing in. And those things will still have a lot of value. But I struggle to see how everyday products can be really competitive. Everyday international products like, I don't know, shampoos or laundry detergent, uh, you know, things things of that nature. I, I struggle to see how things where provenance isn't hugely important and their commodity products, I, I struggle to see how those will fare in 10 years time against Chinese brands um, and if they'll even be in market anymore. A brand that's really close to, close to uh, at least my time at Ogilvy and, you know, with WPP is, is uh, KFC. And um, one of the things that they did in 2016 was they spun off their their China operations, so they would run independent of uh, of the rest of the world, and just uh, you know, and that that helped them a lot in terms of localizing the menu, making decisions locally, automating or at least digitizing the way they ran their operations. There's a joke that usually circulated whenever we open up with the KFC China presentations that <laughs> it's a it's a technology company that sells you know fried chicken um so i, I think that's a really good example of uh, of an international business that's uh, localized and adapted itself for this market ali are we ready for the ab test uh, absolutely we're ready for the ab test do a stands for ali b stands for bryce uh we're gonna throw two options two words two sentences at you and then you just have to make a pick so here we go uh big s or small s small data or insights data because i mean data is the basis of it, of insights so i think it's sort of like you're talking about um you know, molecular level, um, like at atomic level versus, you know, a larger structure. <laughs> okay. uh, a 2023 or 2043? 
That's an interesting question. Um, I would say 2023 because I feel like it's the... I feel like what's happening in marketing right now and the enabling technologies that are coming on the scene, it's probably the most exciting time in my career. That um, and, and I feel like by 2043, we'll be fully on that path. So I actually feel like the, the transformation that's taking place in, in our industry at the moment is, you know, uh, watching, being at the, the, you know, at the beginning of the revolution. <laughs> Invention or innovation? Innovation. Digital transformation or digitization? Roll out all the buzzwords. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I suppose a transformation. Yeah. Transformation. McDonald's or KFC? Of course, in China. KFC, 100%. Excellent. KFC, uh, 100%. <laughs> BYD or Tesla? That's, that's it. You know, they're very different. Uh, I mean, I'm not a car person, but I think, uh, and they're very different price points. But I think I'd have to go with BYD because I actually really like the idea uh, of what they're doing in terms of the car being, a sh- you know, to some degree a shell for all the lifestyle technology. And so I actually feel like from a utility point of view, as me is not a car person, it, is, it served me better. And the last one, uh, Unilever or P&G? <sighs> I'll have to go with Unilever. <laughs> I still have a lot of stock. <laughs> I, I want them to do well. I'm a little bit worried. <laughs> I'm a little bit worried about all the... You know what's interesting about Unilever, I think, is... um, I mean, obviously, they're going through a lot of change right now. But um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of these small indie brands in China or abroad or wherever, you know, they're really having to face competing at a grassroots level. And uh, and I think they're in the midst of change. But I I believe they'll come out the other side. Joanna, uh, thanks for being on the show today. It was really awesome. I thought it was a very fascinating and, yes, I believe a very, very timely topic. Uh, interesting discussion. So the book is called Chinafy, How China is Leading in Innovation and How the Rest of the World Can Catch Up. It's by Joanna Hutchins, and it'll be on the shelf in, in, uh, by the time this podcast is launched in April. Is that correct, Joanna? Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. That's correct. And um, I mean, I'll send you a link in the show notes, but just in terms of if you're interested to read it, um, it's going to be available in, you know, on Amazon. Uh, so you can just look up my name or the book name. You can also look it up um, if you're in Asia. What might work a little faster is the Kino Kunya bookstores. It'll be on their um, uh, website as well. And they do global distribution. So if you go to uh, Kino Kunya, you'll also be able to buy it there as well. Great. That's awesome. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's episode. Join us in a few weeks for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a great day.